You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with Stephen Lovell, who is on a mission at Lovell Wealth Management to help Americans preserve their heritage, because without heritage, every generation must start over. He delivers comprehensive financial advice that is objective, specific, and confidential in order to protect his clients and their heirs from financial risk. He has been featured in Money Magazine, Investment News, New York Times, USA Today, Business Week, Wall Street Journal, Financial Planet, Huffington Post, U.S. News and World Report, Time Magazine, and more. On today's show, we talk about what are some of the common ways that people pass down generational wealth, what is the future of generational wealth, and how might it change as society and the economy evolves, how does the tax code affect generational wealth, and how can families ensure that their wealth is used for positive purposes across multiple generations. This and much more on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now let's begin. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. All right. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, I'm very excited for today's guest. This this episode's probably been in the works for about two years now, maybe even longer. It was an intro from a past guest, Chris Abato, who everyone here, if you're looking for an investment banker in Silicon Valley, she's a person you have to know. So she made the introduction. And then for the longest time, we've been trying to get this on the counter. So I'm very excited for today's episode. Stephen, thank you for taking the time to be on the Silicon Valley podcast. And Sean, I am equally excited. Yes. So for our audience, today's topic that we'll be covering, it's something that will hopefully will affect many of the founders listening to this episode for that exit one day. But before we even get to the meat of today's topic and conversation, can you tell our audience a little bit about your career and your story up until this point? You probably know since you do these shows regularly, we all like talking about ourselves, Sean. Thanks for asking. And I appreciated your great introduction this morning about your own self. Very interesting too. I'd like to interview you someday, all right? Whenever your calendar is available, let me know. Shall do. So I was born and raised in San Francisco, and my dad sold insurance. And back then, in the 50s and 60s, selling insurance really meant you were selling two types of products. You were selling term insurance, and you were selling whole life. And the reason most people bought insurance was if the primary earner, which was usually the husband in this case, became disabled or ill, or something happened so the money was not coming in anymore, the insurance was the backup. It preserved the integrity of the family. So most of the people I knew back then, dad's peers, if you will, they, like dad, believed they were helping families, the structure of those families. So I grew up with a very positive feeling about insurance products. And then the other thing I remembered is, because dad spoke eight languages, by the way, listeners, Sean speaks three. That's nothing compared to eight. (laughs) It's not bad, sir. So dad really spoke everyone's language. He even spoke Basque, if you can believe that. It's a very tough one. So I ended up meeting all these Europeans when I was growing up. And when I would go to his house, because I'm the oldest boy, the women would pick me up, they'd put me in their arms, and they'd hug me and feed me. And I always thought, I guess clients are people who feed you and hug you. So I had a very positive feeling about clients. And then in my own life, Sean, after the end of a marriage and the disruption of a household with children, we had three children in a big house and so on, I had to find something new to do because it was the beginning of a new stretch of my life. So I thought back to what dad did, and I got an insurance license. I became employed by MetLife, and I did what dad did. 
and I was really poor at it. Oh. Yes. And the reason I was poor at it is that I didn't want to sell products. I didn't want to sell anything. But once I thought that insurance, like dad was selling it, was to keep families integrated, then I got more comfortable. And unfortunately for me at MedLife, there was a guy there, Bill, and Bill became my mentor. So he looked at me and he said, Stephen, you probably should be doing comprehensive financial planning. I did not even know what that was. And so I then got my 63. I got my six, which is just short of the seven. You have the seven. I have the seven now. And that allows you to sell virtually everything in the financial services industry. And so I did that. And then what I realized was I like working with families, not just individuals. And I like this idea that I was doing good, that I was keeping families intact. So like you, I got more licenses. By now I've got my 31, 24, 63, 65, 67. And I know you already have your 79 to become an investment banker. I am going to take my 79 exam probably in about a month and a half. For our listeners out there, the amount of hours that go into each of these exams, you're, you probably are unaware, but everyone he just mentioned, that's a pretty big chunk of your life. Smart guy, smart guy right here. It's a big chunk of your life. Absolutely. It takes focus. And uh, so that's how I got into the business and I enjoyed it. And I've continued, I've done this for 32 years now. Dad was right about this, Sean. Okay. So tell us one generative wealth. Tell us about, well, here in the Valley, everything is more or less new wealth, correct? Correct. Yes. And those terms, new and old wealth, they're not terms of art. They're about, it's a little like saying, here's a ladder. It's a tall ladder. I don't think it has much more meaningfulness than that. Intergenerational wealth would just be wealth that's large enough. So magnitude counts here. It's large enough that it's going to be passed on to another generation. In other words, the people who have the wealth or created the wealth are not going to expend it. They're going to pass it on. So that would be then intergenerational. And we tend not to have that much intergenerational wealth in America because we are a younger country. And from what I can tell, after I also became a, I'm a chartered analyst to philanthropy. And I learned a lot about the transference of wealth and estate planning. And I'm also an accredited estate planner. And also which kinds of families create this kind of wealth. And this thing you just said, the old versus the new. In Silicon Valley, what we have here, we both live and work here, is new wealth, if you will. This is wealth that's created by current people, and the old wealth would be more like what my family had, if you want me to tell that story about my... Actually, let's, let's go into that story. Why not? Tell us a little bit about your family and the, right. the old wealth. And I have a great contrast for you at the end here, because I also have three children. So my grandfather, and I'm named for him, I've got the same first and last name, my middle name, which is not Stephen LaBelle, was in the clothing business. And he lived in a, what I would call a manufacturing town in just northeast of Toronto, northwest of Toronto, called Kitchener. And just like many of those towns that we have in Ohio, Pennsylvania, New York, even New Jersey, where you have manufacturing, whether they were building tires or they were building cars, my grandfather built an enormous business in the clothing business. And in that town of Kitchener, about 130,000 people, there were four or five families, ours was one, that had significant wealth, and we were all friends. So I would play tennis with these people. The last scion of the Krug family, the furniture-making business, when Mabel, the oldest the surviving member of that, my mother would drive her all around. If she needed to go to Toronto, mother would drive her, Sean, because we were all, if you will, connected. And so in our case, the Forsyth, which is the family, 
we did the clothing business. And at some point, that business was large enough that as my stepson said to his sister and brother and my two natural children, you come from a dynasty. And I like the word dynasty. It's very nice. Yes. So that back then, most of it was based on manufacturing one sort or another. Whereas in Silicon Valley here, we create wealth much more quickly and we do it through other means, as you know. Now, if you have called it old wealth, like the Forsyth, it's very easy. You know, it's like if you're going to drive to San Diego, you've got a 10 hour drive there. So you're driving there with your wife. You go to a rest stop and you switch drivers. She just goes in the driver's seat now. If you got a manufacturing business, like the clothing business, when my grandfather passed, I had two uncles, Uncle John and Uncle Jim. Uncle John and Jim, one became president and one became vice president. That's, if you will, old wealth. And here's something interesting to consider. I looked up, getting ready for this show, Kim Kardashian's wealth. First time I've ever looked up Kim Kardashian, right? And her wealth apparently is about $1.2 billion. And what this means... For those, oh, you can see Sean's. I'm shaking my head just because, and from my understanding, she's not the richest Kardashian. I think it's the- No kidding. The youngest sister and the makeup brand, if I remember correctly. Just if you think about the wealth in that family and how they got it, it just boggles my mind. I'm boggled too. (laughs) That's all right. We're both boggled. She's got four kids, right? So far. When those kids inherit wealth, you know what they will be? Old money. They will be old money. So I think- Pretty much, that's it. Second generation, you do the handoff, old money. New money is those who create it. And when someone creates wealth, like my grandfather did, typically when they pass on the business or the wealth, they want it to be preserved. They don't expect the next generation to be creators of new wealth. They expect them to preserve it. Interesting, interesting. Okay, so one creates it, the other just maintains it. But that transition... Because the skill set to make it and the skill set to maintain it are different. They are different. You know, that shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves things, right? First generation makes it, second generation dissipates it, third generation lives in sorrow. For the foresight, Sean, it was a little like that. I was up in August to see my cousins and my youngest son had his first child. So we went up to see him, Christine and I. And the cousins and I, we remember what it was like to be in that family with all that money. Now, we lived in San Francisco, but all the others lived in Canada near Toronto in in Kitchener, and that's where the bulk of the wealth was. So we were the poor family, the Californians. (laughs) Yes, I know. And so that was a lifestyle that was really very nice. It did involve things like sailing and tennis and boats and airplanes and maids and all of that. It's very nice. So what happened then with that transition? Why didn't just wondering, why didn't your dad fall in line there and be part of it? Why branch off on his own? Tell a little bit about this history. My dad would have been considered an interloper. Interesting. Not just because he was Jewish, but he was not part of the Forsyths. Mother married dad. And so she had two younger brothers, John and Jim. They were the natural heirs to my grandfather's business. And they ran the business. And they were not really crafty people. They were not smart people. and. All of that generation, mother's generation, Sean, they were heavy drinkers, heavy drinkers. So between alcohol and also just poor management, at some point, the Forsyth Shirt Company became a waste. How many dynasties, I guess, do you think are destroyed because of either one, outside substances or mismanagement or passing it down to maybe heirs that are not fit to continue the legacy? How about? A hundred percent. At some point, 
Clearly, when you look at the tax code, it's actually constructed with purpose, and we all we all ridicule the tax code, but there's purpose. And when we tax wealth transfers, whether in life or at death, we're trying to make sure the wealth doesn't pool somewhere and not be utilized. In Silicon Valley, we're in the business of capital formation. Isn't that what you and I do? Right. Yeah, okay, capital formation. We make sure that people who have money are somehow giving it to those who can create things. And that's essentially what the tax code does too. If people don't save, we don't have wealth we can transfer to people who are going to build new wealth. So that's very important. And if everyone was allowed just to keep their wealth and never turn it over, if you will, then if you go to the beach and you look at one of those rocky coasts like we have in California and the waves come in or high tide and then the tide goes out, what do you see? You see these little rock pools. And that's what would happen with wealth. It'd be like rock pools and there'd be no new development. So we must be able to make sure that there's flow in wealth that it's turned over and new things are done with it. And tax code can help doing that. There are many countries in the world now since about 2017 that are taxing wealth. And back around 25 years ago, I think there was only about two countries, India and France. I may not have that right. So our listeners can tell me if I got that wrong. I know India was right. And they were making sure again that some of that wealth that was building up in these families would go to others. And I think since 17, because of COVID and the slow up in GDP in all these countries, a lot of the taxation that's new on wealth is because governments really need more tax dollars, more revenue. But that's purpose behind that is really to make sure there's usage of money. What are the best ways then, or some ideas or strategies to pass on wealth from one generation to the other? I will tell you, if you believe as a wealthy man or that you're going to be able to have enough wealth that your children, perhaps your grandchildren, and even later generations are going to be able to utilize that wealth it would be in your best interest to find a way to incorporate the other generations into the family planning. So there are a lot of advice givers such as myself who help people who have wealth incorporate other members of the family. And so you can have these family meetings. You can have foundations or endowments that are set up. You can involve the children in those foundations and endowments by putting them in charge, making them feel responsibility for preservation of the wealth, and they realize what their dad or their mom or their family, earlier generations created, is worth keeping. The best examples in America are really the Carnegies and the Rockefellers. They built their money. We call them robber barons, but they built the wealth and then they gave it away. We look at the modern wealth builders like Jeff Bezos and the, the Gates bill. They're doing the same thing. And I would say they're doing it more intelligently. They are more educated than my grandfather's generation. They understand the wealth has come quickly and they understand it could be lost. I think. I think Bill and Melinda did not want their kids to be so wealthy that they would not utilize their own brains. So they limited the amount that would go to the children, enough to keep them safe and comfortable, but not enough to demoralize them. So say there's a founder here in Silicon Valley, builds a tech company over over a short number of years, say five, 10 years, goes public, an amazing exit. He's got what would be considered generational wealth at that point. Still young though, maybe children are just now barely teens. When should those conversations start? What would be some ideas of, I guess, how would, how should the person think of setting things up before they have this huge exit, after this huge exit, and maybe years to come? I know there's a lot there, but some guidance maybe for some of our listeners that hopefully one day might have one of these amazing events. I hope we're talking about you, Sean. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Yeah, good. All right. So first of all, if they're exiting that early in life, it's very likely they're still very intellectually vital. And so although they may have built up already a hundred million dollars, it's likely they will go on to other projects. So that means that 
they will make their children aware, one, they have wealth that sets them apart from other people in society, that they do have a call to societal responsibility to make sure that, you know, the United States as a whole is some way better off. And then they can also start bringing the children in early on into, call them family discussions about wealth and wealth preservation. And there are, again, there's correct, you know how we mentioned licenses at the beginning of this show. There are also special, call them training academies that specialize in this kind of training, exit strategies. And then how do you handle the exit when you've collected the wealth? Okay. Okay. So go on. So there's that exit. They're having conversations with their children, with their family, letting them know that I don't want to say that they're special, but letting them know that things are a little bit different. At this point, psychologically, how do most of these children react to this news or the significant others in the family or friends? I'm guessing social dynamics there get flipped almost instantly. I think we're all aware that whether we used to try to distinguish, call it the character of people by whether it was nurture or nature, nurture versus nature. I don't think that is a prevalent idea anymore. You can have two people coming from the same family, same conditions, ending up very different. And on the other hand, you can have them very similar. There's that old thing where the, there's a guy doing a, a, a magazine article on alcoholism, and he goes to see this guy who, who's a heavy drinker, drinks all day, and that's all he cares about. And he says, hey, why are you such a heavy drinker? Guy said, what do you expect? Both my mother and father were alcoholics. I'm just doing what they were doing. And then he goes to see the guy's twin brother. He says, hey, how come you never touch alcohol? You know about my mother and father, right? Why would I do what they did? So how we respond to circumstances in life is very different. And I don't think anyone's figured that out. Maybe neuroscientists will figure it out. We're all crossing our fingers on that. So some children, I've got three siblings, and we react to things differently. And I don't know that parents can impose upon their children the same, if you will, drive for success or the idea that they should preserve what they have. Some people will see it as just being born lucky or born with gold, going to your bedroom and everything's gold, like Midas. And you may want to just take advantage of that. Okay. So say of the three children, yes, one wants to follow in dad's footsteps, two don't, they want to work with nonprofits. Yes. How does the money get set up then for that generation? One of the things that I think all planners, as myself, are very aware of is that there's so many, sometimes, I shouldn't say so many, oftentimes there can be disputes between the children's, the children. Who's going to get the bulk or who's going to get control? Same way in my family. Three older girls and mother's generation, Sean, two younger brothers. The boys got, we called the factories. We didn't call it the business. It was the factories because we actually had physical factories everywhere. And then the girls got all the other stuff, the homes, the farms, the wealth, all the jewelry and so on, the intellectual property, if you will. And so you probably want, if you're the parents of these children, to make sure that there is agreement amongst the heirs. Talk to the attorneys who handle these kind of estate problems and boy, the bickering that can go on and the self-destruction. Some people are willing to destroy as long as the other one doesn't get it. So that kind of management of your children and also making sure that as a family, they, as much as possible, they act with one good character and with non-hostility towards their siblings. Not so easy. Is there any way guarantee or put boundaries on money so that it's used for a positive purpose? There is, yes. We do use this term in estate planning, control from the grave. Once you hand something off to someone, once you give it to them, and at that point you have no control over how they use it. 
Now, if it's a small estate, and most estates are small, this is not really significant. Once you're up to around $100 million, that's not small anymore. The magnitude is there. So when you hand something off, there are ways you can manage it in life, you're not yet passed, or from the grave. And this is where estate planning trusts come into play. And there are many kinds of trust. They can control one, the speed at which money is allocated to children after you pass. They can, there can be conditions set, such as you must at least finish your four-year degree, or you must go in the Army, or something of that nature. There can be also some conditions having to do with abuse issues, having to do with alcohol and drugs, if one of them is doing that. Other things like, you can't control who your son or your daughter marries. And if you talk to people who've built the wealth, often they'll tell you, God, I hate my son-in-law, I hate my daughter-in-law. And so there is that, too, that oftentimes... The enemy is like my dad, the interloper, although I think dad was not in any way baleful. He was a good man. But some wealth builders do have fear of their children's spouses. So you can make sure that you control or manage these children so they don't have this. But everyone's going to be still going in their own direction. As for um, endowments and foundations, these can be set up, and certainly you can involve the children. Very common to do that. And that means you put them in a position of power. You make them realize that the power they have is to move wealth to other society members, other groups. You can do good, but you can force people to be generous. Okay, so you have the guardrails lined up. So some things can happen, some things can't. But how do I say this? If they don't have the education, how do they even have an idea of where to put it? So where does wealth education come into this? Well, that's where someone like myself could be a party to this. I said, there's a curriculum you can take that help you learn how to be mindful of these issues that arise amongst family members. There are certain kinds of trust you can build that compel, if you will, good behavior. And the most difficult things to pass to another generation, there are two of them. One is going to be real estate and the other is going to be a business interest. Oh, why, why would real estate be difficult to pass? Real estate is typically governed by two sets of laws. Where the real estate exists, that's the state of domicility. So let's say you own property in Illinois. So Illinois' rules of real estate ownership come into play. And then if you die in California, the state of California comes into play. So that's often difficult. And then the same with business interest. There's often partners. If you ever talk to, let's call it a, an LLC, and you've got maybe four members, and they're all married, these four members. And one of the biggest fears is if my partner, Stuart, dies, and then Sherry is now a co-owner with me, a quarter owner, and I hate Sherry, so I don't want her to own it. So often they will build contracts, and this is what insurance specialists can do to make sure that if Stuart passes, there's enough cash sitting in that LLC that Sherry's interest can be purchased by the three other LLCs, and they can compel that surviving spouse to make the sale. Sometimes these are called buy-sale agreements, and that ensures that the business can be maintained if we lose one of the major progenitors of the business. How big does the company need to be then to start having these conversations with insurance? And I'm guessing the lemonade stand at the corner is not big enough, but... No, it's not. I would say that anyone who's working with a financial advisor an experienced financial advisor, where there's a business interest, and this is likely something to be recommended to them, that they be aware that illness, disability, divorce, birth of a new child can affect the maintenance of the business. And what is providing all these four LLC members a good life is the business. If you lose your revenue because something untoward happens, you got a big problem. 
So this is just normal planning, how to buy out other members. Okay, so we talked about buying out other members. We've talked about generations passing money from one to the other, when to get education. We've talked a lot of things of step one, step two, step three, step four in line. But what happens when there's changes in the economy during this? Because, well, your great grandfather can't predict really everything that's going to happen 100 years later or 50 years later. Or I'm sure Kim Kardashian, some people, maybe not even who knows how far in the future, but what happens then? I'm with you on that. I was on the radio for four years. And at the end of the year, people make all these predictions. And because I grew up with a lot of grand pianos in the house and I used to play piano very poorly, by the way, Sean, very poorly. I always sat on a piano bench. And if you got up off your bench, there was always a lid. And if you opened the lid, you'd find things in it. What you should have found in there was sheet music, but you often found other things in there like old cigarette packets and swizzle sticks and things like that. Party hats, you know. So I used to say on the radio, hey, I think we should all look at these predictions made in October, November for the upcoming year, put them in our piano bench, and then in January, open them up. And it would be enormously funny to see how absurd those predictions were because we've had all the rain in Silicon Valley late, right? So on Sunday, I looked up the state of our aquifers. And if you Google things, you often get things from maybe a few months earlier. So one prediction I got, I think it was made in like October, August of 2022 or 2021 was California will have no water in 2022. No water. (laughs) So most of those predictions have that kind of veracity. They're just useless. They really are. We can't predict what goes on in the economy. That's correct. So I always tell people as a financial planner, I tell people, look, there's two things we want to look out for. A big change in your condition or a big change in the economy's condition. And what's more likely to affect people to disrupt them is the big change in their own condition a health condition, again, a new marriage, a divorce, birth of a new child, birth of twins. What occurs in the economy is more controllable. Now, if something goes out of favor, think about all your old devices. Yesterday, I bought a iPod or no, a new phone, a 14. And apparently, I'm probably out of date already. Maybe 15 is all right. But you get the point. We're very early adopters of new technology, especially in Silicon Valley. But when it comes to other strategies, when it comes to trust, and some of these financial strategies I recommend, they're often ignored because they sound very complicated. I was at a meeting once where there was an attorney speaking, and he had these wonderful strategies, all of which I'm aware of, for helping people preserve their wealth and to pass it on without having the taxing authorities take it all away in estate taxes. And during the 1030 coffee break, I went up to this guy and said, wow, those are really great. And I said, so how many of those have you actually implemented? And he said, one. I said, why is that? He said, Stephen, got to understand, great ideas, there are lots of them, but getting people to believe great ideas can be used in their life, not so easy. And they sound complicated. And there's also, there are threats to any kind of strategy you come up with as a planner. One of the biggest ones is what we call legislative threat. The fact is taxing authorities, Congress can make changes. And those changes often have an enormous effect on what people do with their money. Most of what I do is driven by taxes. I'm a tax planner. Sean, tax planner, and I help people do multi-year tax planning to make sure they pay the least amount possible. And also because we are in here in California, pretty much the highest tax state in the country, tax planning comes into play and it drives many decisions we make about where we live, how we live, how we transfer money, whether we do it while we're alive inter vivos or we do it at death through a legacy to our children and grandchildren. So then how often should someone talk to a tax planner? Is this something that should happen yearly, quarterly, or every couple of years? That's really a very good question. First of all, if there's a major tax shift, and remember there's major tax legislation passed every two years, major. 
where it's secure 2.0, right? We had secure, and then right away we got secure 2.0. Given the fact that these tax law changes often affect wealth preservation and wealth transference, whenever that kind of thing occurs, I think the wealthy family should be sitting down with their tax specialist and making sure that if there's an effect, it's managed. And sometimes it really means you have to change your strategy. Before 2000, there was a very, there had not been a change in the amount of wealth that you could transfer without being taxed for many years. It was roughly 600K. And then George Bush Jr. came in and he changed it. And it was every year up to 2010, there was a change in the amount that could be passed without being hit with taxes. And then the year 2010, it was pretty much everything. So I remember there was, we talked a lot about Jordan Steinbrenner back then, the guy who owned the Yankees. And would George get lucky and die in 2010 when the kids would inherit all? Because apparently he'd done no tax planning. So back then, we started excusing a lot more. And right now, we're up at about 13 mil. Husband and wife can transfer roughly 13 mil without being subject to tax, the state tax planning. And that always means the federal government, not the state governments. Our states also want to collect some money. And we used to have, I think it was called something like the SOP tax or soak up. It really meant that the states, like California and the feds, work together. And if the feds collected 52% in estate taxes to the federal level, part of that would go to California. That changed in 2000. So right now, I think there are 12 states in our country that have an estate tax. Now, an estate tax is tax that um, the estate is subject to. So you leave your $100 million to your children then the estate, your estate's going to pay the tax on that 100 mil. On the other hand, there is also, we have an inheritance tax. Inheritance tax means if you give 100 mil to your son and your daughter, Sean, then it's your children who will pay that tax. And then there are many states that have both an estate tax and an inheritance tax. And California right now does not have either. But of course, that's surprising. I know it is. Whenever I think anything taxes or anything, I think California is the worst. That's wow. Okay. Easier to tax income, which is what we do. Okay. Income is identifiable, W-2s and all that. It's an easier thing to do. It's, it is more easy for a family who has wealth to, I wouldn't say hide, but certainly to prevent the taxing authorities from grabbing the money. So yeah, we don't have that, but we could have it. As governments don't get hungry for revenues that they're not getting, then they're going to have new taxes. So we don't have that right now. Oh, go on, go on, go on. I, I interrupted you somewhere no, there. Here's an idea, though. If you are worried about taxing in a state that's got a state tax, what's a very simple thing you can do? Move. Exactly. When you look at the number of people moving California out of California, you know what it is? It's not because of a state tax, a 13 mil. It's because of income tax. That's what's driving people to Texas and Florida and Arizona and even Nevada. A lot of contacts I know over the, especially once they're allowed to start working remote. Over the last three years, left thinking, oh, I'll be gone for a couple months, maybe six months, part-time here, part-time there. No, they're gone. They're not coming back. I know. I know. When you look at the real estate market, and I'm involved with ADISA, I won't go through what the ADISA thing stands for, but it's really the organization that is involved in the use of alternative investments, which is something I specialize in. And I'm on the board of directors now. And actually, I've got a board meeting in San Diego coming up in two weeks. That organization looks at real estate holdings. And roughly, you've got five sectors in the real estate industry. Multifamily, you've got office, you've got industrial, you've got senior living and so on. When you look at the office sector in the real estate market, not doing so well. Not doing so well. No one knows if people will move back into offices. It's crazy, too, because you don't hear the rents or the leases being lowered by it because... 
the value of it's based on the lease and everything else. Supply and demand. Lower it and, yes. Yeah. I know. But there is, New York's got a lot of empty office space, much. I think what will happen there is there will be a lot of conversions. So old office buildings happening right here in San Jose, San Mateo, they're doing that. They're taking properties that used to be filled with office persons and they're now converting them into condominium ownership, very nice apartments. And it's happening in New York too. There'll be more of that. So in that respect, the housing sector in real estate is a very hot market, very hot. So let's go back a little bit to your family and the generation wealth. What didn't happen that could have or should have happened? Awareness that preserving wealth requires intelligence, thoughtfulness, and the application of planning, really. The application of planning. Interestingly, my, my Aunt Joy died early. Sean, she had cancer. She died at 42. And my mother and her three siblings essentially walked outside into the corridor of the hospital and changed my grandfather's will through agreement. So my Aunt Joy had one child, Robin. He's my oldest cousin. And if Joy died, the way my grandfather's estate was constructed, the, her portion would revert to her four siblings. But my mother and her three siblings thought that wasn't fair to Joy on her deathbed and her one child, Robin. So they all agreed that essentially what would come back to the estate, they would distribute to Robin. That's my grandfather made the plan, but it wasn't the best plan perhaps because it really, it disinherited any one of the, his children who died prior to their own children's death. Oh, interesting. Okay. So the planning was not correct. Yes. Now for your family, your kids, how planned out are things? You know, it's funny. I could bookend what happened with the foresight, Sean. You could say the dissolution of wealth with what's going on with one of my three children. One of my three children is a billionaire. He is one of those Silicon Valley people. Hopefully he'll be on the podcast in the future. Thanks for the invitation. I'll let him know. Yes. And he's done it the way most others have done it. He's, he's, he's become a major owner of one of these companies that has these fantastic sales and he's worked hard. I remember him saying once there was a Wall Street Journal article about something he had to, about a lot of people were being fired in his company and the Wall Street Journal got it wrong by a magnitude of 10. So if it said he had to fire a thousand, but he had to fire 10,000. And he told me during that period, he slept on the floor in his office. These are people who do work 18 or 20 hours a day. They work till the work is done. They don't go home at five. They don't go to the bar and have a drink. They don't go home and watch baseball or hockey. They work. And he had to do that. Where were we on that one, though? I think we were comparing your son to the Kardashians oh, yes, yes. and how he should have had an Instagram account instead of building a successful company. So, yeah, he did it, again, the way Silicon Valley people do it. Now, he's got four children of his own, and I know, well, of course, all four of these. And as far as I know, none of the four children, one, they're not as driven as he is. They're not as smart as he is. And if you guys are listening, I don't mean that in any unpleasant way. Your dad's very smart and they're not interested. They don't want to do what he does. They don't want to work that hard. They don't want to. And he may have other ideas for them too. If you make a lot of wealth through, I don't know, iron works or selling shoelaces, you probably don't want your own children to also sell shoelaces and build cannons, right? You want them to maybe become artists or writers. And so most rich parents want their children to be able to do things that are maybe more creative. Now, Silicon Valley wealth is different. I believe the kind of wealth that's created here by these entrepreneurs is the kind that we all think is wonderful. It is done by, if you will, artists. These are artists with money. These are engineers who know what to do, and they are more educated. You don't have to take an engineer and say, wouldn't you like your son to do something better? He's going to say, what's wrong with what I do? And Sean, there's nothing wrong with what he does. He wouldn't mind his son or daughter doing something else like that. And 
creativity is really comes into play here, Silicon Valley. It's not drudgery. The people who are making wealth here in our valley are creative people. Question with all your interaction with high net worth individuals over the year, is there a difference in maybe the personalities and cultures of first generation versus second generation versus third or kind of that Silicon Valley new money or old East Coast money? How do the cultures get along or not get along? They are different. I think the old versus new money is a good distinction. Those who create wealth tend to be more aggressive, more creative. You know, they are looking at things that don't exist today, could exist tomorrow. You know, that famous statement made by Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy when he was running. Some people see things that aren't and others like me see things that could be. And I think the Silicon Valley entrepreneurs are doing that very thing. Those who come after them, those who are the children of those men and women, they are not likely to be as driven or as gifted. And they may think, well, you know, dad's done it, mom's done it. I'm going to do what I want to do. Maybe what I want to do is, I don't know, buy an island in the Caribbean and bring my friends there for parties. I don't know. I don't know. I have three children and I can tell you they're very different. My oldest obviously has done very well. Whereas my youngest son, very different. Even though he's got that brilliant older brother ahead of him, he just doesn't have that kind of imagination or drive. And you can't force your children to be what you want them to be. Otherwise, I would have done it. I think I failed in that regard. With that, is there any other last minute words of advice, wisdom you want to pass on to our audience before wrapping up? If you have been fortunate enough and gifted enough to have created wealth in your lifetime and you want your wealth to do good or you want your wealth to be nurturing your family for many generations, you should talk to me. You should talk to someone who helps plan preservation of wealth. There are a lot of tools out there that can help you do that. And it doesn't all have to go up the flu in taxes, which is what a lot of it does. You don't plan, you lose it. It's confiscated. All right. So how can people get in contact with you? They can always call me at 415-254-8719. I will repeat that. If you're driving, drive safely. 415-254-8719. Or just look me up, Stephen, with a PH. Lavelle, L-O-V-E, love with two L's. There's a website. Love to talk to anyone out there who wants to keep what they have and wants to help their children have a good life in the future. Fantastic. We'll have that information in the show notes. So please visit thesiliconvalleypodcast.com where we will have this episode, our past episodes, and some of the information on things that we're working on. And when I'm not the host of the Silicon Valley Podcast, a mid-market investment banker focused on mergers, acquisitions, growth capital, contact me. I'd love to have a conversation. Earlier the better. And with that, Stephen, I want to thank you for taking the time this week to be our guest on the Silicon Valley Podcast. Thank you so much, Sean. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.